Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me, as ever, is the professor, Alan Jameson. You all right, mate? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Bit of a frantic time. We've both been chasing deadlines. And your stuff has arrived. You have stuff. Yeah, well, we've been recording at rather peculiar times. So I've actually been in Australia now for nearly two months. And my stuff that you refer to is my container full of all my worldly possessions. And it's finally here. And you're, you're now in a lovely cupboard. I am actually in a wardrobe. Uh, that's a long, complicated story. It's about trying to be quiet when you're not in the right time zone for a recording. So I'm literally sat on the floor of a relatively big wardrobe. It's not really a walk-in. It's more just like part of the house they didn't know what to do with. So they stuck a fancy door on it and called it a wardrobe. It's an offcut. It's more like a sort of like a cumulative error of, in a drawing. I had a student room once that was technically a cupboard and the boiler was in there. And uh, I lived in it. It was good times. Oh, cool. <laughs> I said one that was off the living room in a big shared student house. So every time I had to go to the loo in the middle of the night, I'd have to walk through my PJs, like through a party or through a load of people watching a film. Did they not invite you to the party? God, no. no. Even though you lived in the same room? Actually, yeah. Now that you bring it up, I think I've been bullied. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what news have we got going on at the moment? There's there's all sorts going on right now. Do you want to dive the in new, first? The news at my end is I'm, I'm, I'm establishing a brand new deep sea research centre in Australia from scratch. That's probably relevant. I thought so. How's it going? It's difficult. Is it? Is it hard? It is kind of hard. It's kind of cool. Got lots of stuff, lots of unbelievable eye-watering sums of money. It's uh, quite difficult to do when you've got nothing but a sort of empty shell to build on, but getting there. Clean slate, blank canvas. Yeah. Looking for a sort of a name at the moment. It needs a, needs a proper name. I was about to ask, does it have a name? Legally, it's called the Mindaroo UWA Deep Sea Research Centre. But Catchy. that's far too big a mouthful. We're going to think of another name. Big R's. Deep something, yeah. Yeah, something with a funny acronym. So that's most yep. of science, really. Do write in and give us your ideas. We'll do a competition on the podcast. You can, competition. You can name come up with a name. Deep C McDeep Face. The Institute will be, yeah, lovely. Anything else you wanted to add on that? That is actually quite interesting if you're ready to go public. Getting close to ready to go public. It probably won't have a big formal opening event until February for all sorts of weird reasons. But we've got some members of staff now looking to score some more. We've got some PhDs advertised. Building some new gear, getting out a new lab. We've got a ship in West Australia, which we can use regular periods throughout the year. And yeah, it's all looking pretty good. It's exciting times. See, it's complicated. It's complicated. Lots of handshaking. <laughs> Lots of meeting yeah. people and going, yes, I'll, of course I'll remember who you are. I hear you're very important. Do you have money for me? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. Oh, sorry. I Sorry. I Thank you for the money. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's very exciting. It's not often in anyone's career you get a chance to set up something like this just from scratch. It is quite an honour to be able to do it, but it would be easier if I hadn't also emigrated to the side of the world at the same time. It's some good multitasking. The whole personal side of things and work-wise, but I'm enjoying it. It's cool. Good. I've seen what you like when you're bored. I tend to hit metal things with an adjustable spanner. I'll be working on something else, and I'll just hear him from a distance slowly, like the volume's fading up, going bored, 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 bored. And he'll just have some heavy tool in his hand, and we'll just be tapping things as he goes along. And we'll then usually it's like sit down next to me at the desk and start tapping on the desk. And that basically means whatever I'm doing, you know, bring it to a close. We're gonna go go and have some beer or or talk nonsense for a little bit. <laughs> I need I need entertaining. Yeah, like a toddler. <laughs> like a toddler. Despite you know, I might be busy, but never mind. Yeah, I need to curb that. That's why that's why I invented my happy place of plowing the moon. Because if I start plowing the moon, if I psychologically start rubbing all those craters out and making the moon all nice and smooth with my big moon harvester, uh, I tend not to hit metal objects with metal objects. Yeah. I mean, I'd never tell you that that's essentially mindfulness. What? I'd never say that. That's not mindfulness, is it? Don't worry about it, mate. Don't think about it. Oh, no. 
Oh, well, the moon's on its own now. It's just going to have to remain all bumpy. None of this is deep sea news. <laughs> it is, because it's what, it's what we do when I'm over the deep sea and bored. So there, there, yeah, there's a link true. there somewhere. Yeah, when Alan's doing all this, the deep sea is directly below him. <laughs> hmm. Not giving me any entertainment, that's his fault. It's the deep sea's fault. It's not being entertaining enough. It's when all the gear's in the water and you don't get to, to pester the deep sea. Okay, so in news, as part of the big deep sea project coming out of India... Uh, that you mentioned on the previous episode, they've revealed plans to build a uh, six-kilometer capable underwater vehicle. Looking at the pictures, I thought that this looks like a, a bathysphere. It looks like it looked a lot like BB's old one, but I think they're just testing the pressure hull at the moment. They've done a test with a stainless steel prototype, and they're testing the titanium one now. So I think it's still a, a while off, but there's going to be another human-occupied vehicle getting down there as uh, India sort of thoroughly joins the deep sea community. There is a mineral extraction sort of element to all this, but it's good to have another nation on board in exploring the deep sea. There's a nice paper using genetics to pair up the larval forms of a lot of deep sea shrimps and prawns. Basically, a lot of deep sea species, a lot of the larval forms are up in the surface waters and they can look completely different. So there are a lot of species we know as larvae and we know as adults and we've actually had a hard time joining those up. The one that we kept coming across was uh, Plesoponeus amatus, uh, so a big deep sea shrimp uh, that used to turn up on our cameras a lot and that is technically the adult form of, uh, can you remember the genus? I just know it was monstrosus for the species. We've just written a big paper about it but it's a really awkward word that I, I didn't try and say it loud. Yeah, Latin is hard, it turns out. But yeah, it had this really cool name, Monstrosus, because the larva is really a really big larva, basically. So it ended up with the name Monstrosus. That, because of the whole rules with taxonomy we've touched about in the past, that was the older name. So that was the name that had precedence. And so this animal we'd been dealing with for a long time should really have been called Monstrosus. And I think there was arguments with whether to bend the rules because that name really didn't suit it as the adult form. Folk trying to change the taxonomic rules, but as we know, that doesn't go well. I think it fell on Monstrosus. No, it did. It did. It's no Monstrosus. It is. Right. Okay. So taxonomy is all about the rules, but it's really nice piece of work linking a lot of these species that we, we sort of know from, from different ends, sort of completing their life cycle using cool DNA stuff, which reminds me a lot of the... We used to have a lot more parrotfish species, basically, because they go through three very distinct life stages and they have very different colours on all of them. So it reminds me of that when we suddenly realised, like, oh, hold on, these three different types of parrotfish are actually just different stages and different sexes of one species. Flabby whalefish as well in the deep sea. The larva the male and the female are completely different looking fish. Like they fell in different families when people tried to place them before we knew that it was all the same species. Uh, so they don't make it easy for us, especially things that mesmorphose. So I had to look through the recent news. It's, it's another month of bizarre squiddy things. There's one squiddy story that did catch my eye because I think it's really funny. And it's cool, don't get me wrong, it is really cool. And what it basically is, is good folks at Ocean X were diving some wreck in the Red Sea about 850 metres and some big squid came out. That's the story, right? Which is cool enough in itself. There's two elements to this. The one is the way that journalists are really trying hard to make this weird and mysterious and all deep sea. And at the same time, they've brought in Mike Vecchione, who's like absolute authority on squid, who just kills it every time, right? So the headlines are things like, gigantic squid larger than a human photobombs research crew. The larger than human thing seems to be quite a thing, but another one says a giant mystery creature filmed by scientists. Nice. My favourite one says massive squid-like creature, right? The massive squid-like creature is a squid, <laughs> right, right? So 
So you click on those thinking, what, what could the massive squid-like creature, creature be that's larger than a human? And it just cuts straight to a cold, cold Mike Vecchione going, it's not a giant squid. It's a stenochethus. It's a proper back flying squid. We know all about these, and that's exactly where we expect to find them. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> right. just, just because it's the first time you've seen it isn't my fault. <laughs> There's actually a quote in there from him saying, I know that you probably wanted to think that you had some video of giant squids, but I can tell you I'm absolutely certain this is not an Archaeuthus dax. Okay? So the headline should have been, people saw quite a big squid, which is pretty well known from that area generally, and is not the thing we think it might have been until we spoke to Mike. But it's nice to see it. It is good. Don't get me wrong. It is, it is great. It's one of those wonders of nature and all the rest of it. But it's just it's just funny how, the, the, how the, as always, the headline never quite marries up with the actual story. And I don't think it needed amping up like that. But like, it's interesting enough. It's a really cool squid and it's a really cool video. And it is spooky in its own right. It doesn't need to be... We don't need to pretend we don't know what it is. <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a massive squid-like creature. I mean, technically, it's the it's the most squid-like of the creatures. <laughs> it's more squid-like than a fish, for example. Yes. Or a badger. Yep. Taxonomy at, at work. There <laughs> <laughs> is it in a nutshell. So you go. But yeah, not much going on. Lots of things in deep sea mining are all very depressing and all very weird and political. And We've got COP happening right now, so I'm sure there'll be a lot more discussion on that. But would the deep sea ever get mentioned at COP, do you think? There was a whole two-hour session that I'm trying to find the time to watch, put on by Schmidt Ocean. So I'm curious to see that. I'm seeing deep sea scientists who are there tweeting. I'm seeing discussion on outstoring a lot of excess heat and a lot of excess carbon. And basically that the deep sea is quietly saving the day, almost like it's giving us the time we need to maybe correct things. I mean, I'm biased, so I'm probably only hearing the deep sea voices, but it seems that deep sea's on the cards. I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm in Australia. All I've heard is the fact that Prime Minister didn't want to go, and now he's there. <laughs> Something about submarines. <laughs> all, all the headlines have been him arguing with Boris and the French bloke about some submarine contract, which has got nothing to do with COP. And I think that just speaks volumes. Like, this is not yeah. the time for that. You could have resolved that last week on the phone. For waving an but... invoice at each other for some weapons. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah it's like wait mate you're not you know there's not court of arms dealing here it's sort of a prelude to some news the Hakon project two dozen scientists and engineers underwater robots 4,000 meters deep under the arctic ocean part of the aurora vent field so exploring some black smokers we just know that they're back and good stuff happened but we haven't had much about sort of what the scientific findings were so looking forward to hearing about those because that is not a spot that many people get to go and explore I don't even know what the subject is, but you had a thought piece you wanted to present to us. No, it's not, it's not so much a thought piece, it's just it's an interesting thing. It's, be, it's been born out of unpacking all my stuff, and at uh, uh, this particular period in time, when there's lots of things that have been going on, it's been a funny few weeks, there's lots of things that have come across my desk and in my inbox and are going on in the world right now, and we touched on this a while back with regards to storytelling, and there seems to be this ever-growing lack of conversation or at least meaningful conversation at the moment. So on this episode, we are going to talk about soundscapes today. So I thought maybe we should start off talking a little bit about sound in a context of actually having a conversation, or in some cases, not. So as an example, just this last couple of weeks, I've spoken to a PhD student who took some anonymous peer review pretty badly. Actually, to be fair, it was pretty good, but it wasn't what they wanted to hear. But what do you do when you can't engage with the anonymous peer reviewer, Right. This is just one instant where I realized that storytelling is this annoying thing where you can't, in this case, you can't really have that conversation. I also had the misfortune of reading an online feed that was asking the question, has anyone ever done a PhD out of spite? And it was probably one of the most disheartening things I've read in a long time. 
But then what do you do when there's such a disparate bunch of people who are so disgruntled that they don't even realise that what they're doing is an incredible opportunity? Genuinely really disheartening. I also read a scientific paper on the politics of working in other people's waters, which was... Uh, I'm not into bashing other papers on this podcast, I won't mention it, but it was wrong on many, many levels. But then what do you do? What point do you enter into a tit-for-tat argument via scientific literature? And then the other thing that's kicking off at the moment, we mentioned this a while back about this conspiracy theory that I'm partly in the centre of, and that's actually getting a bit out of control now. And it's leaving me sort of sitting there going, what do you do? Do you engage with these people or do we not engage with these people? Is it better to shut up or is it better to go full throttle on it? Right? And then you've got COP26. You've got a whole load of politicians who don't seem to be listening to them in one camp, and then you've got climate activists who have got a good point but seem to be just annoying normal people to try and make their point. And then you've got climate change deniers who don't really want to listen anyway. And you've got people who just don't seem to like Greta Thunberg, but all because she asked for the world to be a better place. Outrageous. I mean, it's an outrageous thing to ask for, but what do you do when you have all these groups of people who just can't communicate with each other? And then the final straw for me came from a very unlikely source. And, and this is up there with the moon analogy. It's the old Edward Forbes Ezoic theory. I haven't heard this in many years. The Ezoic theory is a guy called Edward Forbes, who I don't know, whenever also 150 years ago or something, said that life couldn't exist beyond whatever it was, 300 metres. And this is one of these quotes that used to be reeled out to sort of justify why people were doing it. And it's a brilliant guy intro. went to the grave being told that he was wrong. But actually, that it was pretty well misquoted. It wasn't really what he was saying. But then you can't really argue with it because as soon as you've read it in print, you know that thousands of people have just read that and it's already perpetuated. So all of these things that are bugging me just now evolve around conversation. So is any of that worth actually engaging with? Or do we just let it roll? Do you just try to laugh it off? Do you challenge it or just ignore it and go on with what really matters? But just for fun, as I was unpacking all my stuff, I came across my books and some of my books are interesting, some of them are not. I was just sort of flicking through them and there was a couple of things I thought were really funny and it got me thinking about quotes. So I thought, given the culture at the moment is, if you do engage in conversation, you're pretty much screwed in one way or another. So what I'll try to do is think about these things, but using other people's quotes, so that it's not technically coming from me. Thus, I'm, <laughs> I'm an innocent of all this. I said it. Yeah, so I put together some quotes of some of my favourite famous people, none of whom have got anything to do with deep sea science. I picked five, which I thought were good. So we've got Mark Twain, American 19th century humorist and author. Frank Zappa, arguably the best composer of the 20th century, among many other things. Haruki Murakami, Japanese surreal novelist and jazz fanatic. Sam Harris, philosopher, author and neuroscientist. And the great Hunter S. Thompson, American gonzo journalist who always had something interesting to say. Right, so this comes back to what do you do when it comes to things like conspiracy theories and various other things I just said. But when you hit that wall of you feel that there's nothing you can do and if you do do it, you might end up in a worse place than you were if you just ignored it. Yeah, there's something wrong. Do you engage with it and potentially make it bigger? Or do you just leave it be? Yeah. But interestingly, Sam Harris says, science is the most durable and non-divisive way of thinking about the human circumstance. It transcends cultural, national and political boundaries. You don't have American science versus Canadian science versus Japanese science. I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. That it just transcends all these other things. But when it comes to dealing with some of these guys, he also said that water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. Now, what if someone says to you, well, that's not how I choose to think about water? All you can do is appeal to scientific values. And if he doesn't share those values, the conversation is over. If someone doesn't value evidence, what evidence are you going to provide to prove that they should value it? And then Mark Twain had another one that was along the same lines, probably a more famous one. This says, no amount of evidence will ever persuade an idiot. You can get blunter and blunter with it. Zappa had a really good one. And Zappa said, the universe consists of 5% protons, 5% neutrons, 5% electrons, and 85% morons. 
But he also said that one of his favourite philosophical tenets is that people will agree with you only if they've already agreed with you and that you do not change people's minds. That's a really interesting one when you yeah. try to work out all of that, all of the above, when you look at something like COP or conspiracy theorists or, or, or the whole anti-vax thing or whatever it may be, whether or not you engage or not. So Mark Twain had something to say with that. Mark Twain always said, never argue with a fool because onlookers may not be able to tell the difference. He also said, uh, don't wrestle with pigs because you both get dirty and the pig likes it. Then I started reading through some of these things and looking for other insightful things that could be applied to modern science and navigating the contemporary rat race. And I thought there's a great one by Haruki Murakami that says, if you only read the books everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. I really like that one. And Frank Zappa said, without deviation from the norm, progress is not possible. But then Mark Twain said, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to reform. My favourite one is Hunter S. Thompson, who said that life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. That's the way science should be. He also said that who's a happier man, he who has braved the storm of life and lived, or he who has stayed securely on the shore and merely existed. Yeah, oh, it's like that classic old one, a boat is safest in port, but that's not what a boat is for. Yeah, like but that then one. that sounds all very inspiring. Does that mean then you just phone these guys up and say, right, let's just have it out right now? I am actually going through a period of sort of distress around this whole thing, because I, I see a lot within my friend circle and within social media, and I feel this weird responsibility to challenge them on some of these things, because they're, they're easily disproven and they're outright wrong. <sighs> It takes a lot for someone to change their mind. And I think they won't do it in public. So they'll they'll shout you down and they'll have an argument. And then the hope is that maybe they'll lie awake that night and just think like, oh, actually, they, they do make a point. I think I care about it a bit too much. So I've, I've tried to engage a couple of people and it just, it knocks me sick. It honestly, like, it takes so much out of me. I don't know what the answer is and I don't know if it's worked. I think it's maybe worked a little bit, but it just does me so much harm. I'm not sure... Even the people I've engaged, it's been worth it. Depends if you get a result at the end of it or not. Because you can say you can waste a lot of time wrestling with the pig, but you know, if the pig still ends up enjoying it and you both end up dirty, then it's not worth it, is it? I think in the most cases, you're never going to convince the person, but these online spaces where it's quite public, you maybe got to convince some of the people reading it, or at least have them sort of second guess it. You'll never win the argument, unfortunately. But the hope is that the spectators who love a good argument online are maybe thinking like, oh, actually, yeah, that doesn't stand up. That doesn't make sense. Well, I think I'm just going to default back to my usual. Hunter S. Thompson said, was life has become immeasurably better since I've been forced to stop taking it seriously. Enjoy what you do and don't interfere with other people. I guess so. But then I tried to I tried to do being a science communicator and I feel responsible. I feel I should engage. But I think it just depends, though, because remember, social media has given morons a voice. That's the problem, right? It used to be you to have your opinion put out there and for people to listen to you means you had to be of some sort of stature or you had, a, you had to have a reason why people would listen to you. No, it's just anyone could be listened to. That's, I think that's the difference. I don't think most of them are, are, are morons, though. I think they're just gaining data in the wrong way. They haven't got the sort of critical thinking or, to be honest, the main part is they start with the narrative they want and then they sort of fill in that puzzle with real data. And so anyone else comes along and they can show like this huge array of coincidences and correlations and just say like, this perfectly proves my point. And not pointing out that, yeah, but you've taken this from here and that's out of context and that's glued from over there. And actually this was one of 20 other things. They're doing it wrong. <laughs> they're doing science wrong. And they're, they're always the ones that say like, you've got to have an open mind and oh, I'm just asking questions. But also when you ask question and you get the answer, 
shut up. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you don't like the answer, don't go again. Don't say or don't say like, oh, well, you would say that because blah, 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 blah. And just add another layer of nonsense to it. You've got your answer. But that's where you know you've already lost because you're just going to go around and around in circles at that point. So any evidence you present becomes more evidence of a conspiracy. Because <laughs> if it doesn't match up with their preconceived notions, then it's obviously another lie put to them to try and put them off the scent. Exactly. It's faith-based. You, you start off with what you believe is true, and then you find things that support that, which is not how you do it a good investigation. We're all being a bit cryptic, but if there's if there's anyone listening sort of on the cusp of all this right now, the only thing, because I'll, I'll really show an interest in this whole area, the only thing I would sort of say that's emerged to me, conspiracy theories are the conspiracy. They are a great way of modifying your behavior. Anyone who's sort of on the, on the cusp of all this stuff, just have a little ponder about that for a while because the conspiracies are the weapon because it makes you act in a strange way. It can essentially turn you into a domestic terrorist. It's amazing that it just takes a few YouTube videos to have you actively working against your own country from within. The conspiracy theories are the conspiracy. That is the weapon. That is what's being used against We're not just you. talking about conspiracy theories, so it's just all about the way people talk to each other now. It seems to be almost impossible. Oh, yeah, I sort of had a tangent on my pet peeve there. No, 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 it's a big one. I mean, I, I, I still think maybe we should invite the conspiracy theorists on this podcast. I don't know if we, should, if we should discuss this on the air, but that might make it quite an interesting episode to say, well, come on then, let's have this out. Yeah. But... No, it's just about the way we communicate with each other. I think on 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 so many levels, whether it's through scientific literature or it's through peer review or it's through Twitter or it's you know bigger groups through COP or it's just the way in which we talk about a squid that is well known that Mike Vecchione is obviously not that impressed by. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just it just seems to have no end to it at the moment. It's just sort of lacking interesting, stimulating conversation. It's just someone shouts and then everyone just has to go, okay, he shouted again, and then they just shout back, and everyone's just shouting into the wind at each other. No one's actually talking anymore. And they don't want a recourse. They don't want sort of discussion back and forth because it's all about the zinger. It's all about the like doing the brilliant shout that really backs up your point and then not listening to the reply. There's another good quote from Mark Twain that says, never miss an opportunity, shut up. Uh, I might just sort of take that personally on board right now. <laughs> Maybe I, I wasn't aimed at you personally. No. I, I know, but I, I, there's, there's wisdom. But I like, how, I like how you did actually just shut up though. That, was, that worked really well. <laughs> There's another one from Murakami. This is the last one, I promise. It said, silence, I have discovered. It's something that you can actually hear. And with that in mind, I think we should move to our next guest. So this guy is from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's a guy I had the pleasure of working with earlier this year, in part on the Mariana Trench. He is working in a fascinating subject. He's a fascinating guy, actually, both from a scientific perspective and a personal one. He's a guy who records the ambient soundscapes of the deep ocean. Also happens to be the host of another podcast called Sciographies which we interviews uh, other scientists from Dalhousie University. So, without further ado, we shall welcome David Barclay to the Deep Sea Podcast. All right, and joining us today is David Barclay from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hello, Dave. Hello. How are you? Expecting me to, <laughs> you expecting me to be more lively than that? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm doing fine, thanks. Halifax, Nova Scotia. Pretty much halfway around the world from you, I think. Almost exactly. Well, we're, we're spanning a lot of different time zones at the moment. We're straddling <laughs> the planet. Yeah. That's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. One of us always is going, always going to lose out on this, and today it's definitely me. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, David. Yeah. First of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and the kind of research that you are into 
Well, I am here yeah, at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I am now an associate professor. So I think that means uh, I can't just assist with you guys. I can associate now. It's good. Oh, excellent. Um, but uh, yeah, and so my research in general, in a little bit of a nutshell, I would say I'm very interested in what we can learn just by listening. And in particular, in the ocean, just so happens to be that's a little bit where the money is. But in general, I like to think about what you can extract from the environment, uh, you know, about the environment just by listening to sound. And one of the main focuses of that work has been looking in the deep ocean and in particular, the deep, deep ocean, the Hadal, the Hadal depths, which I believe is the subject of this very podcast. Some of the time. <laughs> Some of the time. That kind of came out of the thin air when I um, went to grad school. So I, I, I went to grad school with this fellow, Mike Buckingham, to, to be my supervisor. One of his hallmark pieces of research was he basically built a, a system for imaging objects underwater just by listening. Throwaway statement is that uh, electromagnetism, uh, optical waves and RF and you know Wi-Fi and you name it, none of those electromagnetic waves travel well underwater. So we have, we as a, as a species have turned to um, acoustic waves to do all the remote sensing, things like seeing, you know, measuring distances, measuring content uh, of, of water. We do all those things using acoustics in, in the ocean. So that's, you know, your sonar, all the different flavors of sonar. And so he had done this totally passive device that was sort of like a acoustic eyeball and you put it underwater and it uses the sound at the surface of the ocean as sort of a blue sky. You can think of the, the ocean as this infinite surface of breaking waves. And each one of those waves creates a little bit of sound. Each breaking wave from the other is sort of uncorrelated and random space and time. But in general, that's sort of like light passing through the atmosphere and scattering. So, you know, we get light directly from the sun that scatters off objects and we can see them. But we also get a lot of light that scatters off the atmosphere first, becomes that blue sky, then scatters off the object and sort of evenly illuminates them. And so in a way, the ocean is this analogous environment where there's no sun, but there's, lot, there's plenty of blue sky to illuminate objects. Anyways, he built this device. That's how I heard of him. That's how I said, I want to go work with him and really pursue this idea of what can we learn just by listening in the ocean. Now, the real world being what it is, um, we had to, you know, find some funding. And so reading through one of the funding agencies sort of call for proposals, there was just this little three word phrase there said one of the things they were interested in was deep ocean noise. And that kind of spurred the idea of making an autonomous lander to go uh, measure deep ocean noise as opposed to a very expensive, very elaborate, very difficult to deploy array system. So typically, acoustic measurements are made with a big series of train wheel anchors and a long, very thick cable with hydrophones attached to it at different spacings and then a big series of glass floats at the top. And it takes a huge vessel with a very nice A-frame crane to deploy the thing and someone very knowledgeable to, to get in the water safely and get it out again. And to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So the idea was, let's try and build a system that's on the order of tens of thousands of dollars that can make the same type of measurement by moving through the water column. And that's, that's exactly what I did in grad school. And so we built this system that was rated to nine kilometers. And the whole idea is that it would start at the surface of the ocean, descend uh, at a sort of slow pace with a series of hydrophones attached to it and sort of a configuration, a, a little mini array. And essentially, as it descends, you sort of record the changing properties of the sound field in the ocean. The main interest of why did the funding agency, which by the way, is the Office of Naval Research. So there's sort of this part of its basic research, but there's also this applied 
you know, sinister applied aspect to it. And so I'll paint, I'll paint <laughs> a little oh, bit. The, word, the use of the word sinister in there. <laughs> well, you know. Everything, everything humans do is a little bit sinister, I think, at the end of the day, yeah. right? Um, so the reason why the U.S. Navy would be interested in this or why it's a defense application in general is it's all about the vertical structure of the ocean. So there's this sort of temperature profile that the deep sea has, there's a salinity profile, and there's a pressure profile. And all of those things combine to make a deep ocean sound speed profile. So why is that interesting? Well, in the deep ocean, at the surface, you have sort of hot, fresh water that has a fairly high sound speed. Then as you go down in depth, the sound speed decreases until about 1,200 meters, 1,500 meters, because the temperature is cooling off. So it gets colder and colder. The sound speed slows down, right? That's kind of easy to imagine, sort of a cartoon thermodynamics perspective, right? The molecules moving a little less. But then at about 1,500 meters, the pressure starts to take over. So the pressure is actually forcing the molecules together, making them communicate sound a little bit better. And as you go below 1,500 meters, the pressure starts to ramp the sound speed back up again. It gets higher and higher and higher. And it basically is linear, it just increases with depth at a linear rate beyond sort of 1,500 meters, 2,000 meters. The product of that is that at that, we call it the channel axis depth at about 1,500, 1,200 meters, there's a sound channel and it acts as a waveguide. And so because of refraction, acoustic waves get trapped at that depth or around that depth. Um, so they refract back towards that depth, whether above it or below it. And so it's the super efficient way to transmit sound around the world. And the famous experiments, there was this Heard Island experiment in the 90s, early 90s, where they blew up some dynamite in Heard Island in the Indian Ocean and recorded it all the way in the eastern seaboard and western seaboards of the United States. So you can really transmit sound around the world using the sound channel. But is this the, ch the sound channel that marine mammals use? Yes. Certainly the low frequency marine mammals like blue whales, you know, they dive down deep and shoot sound into this channel and you can hear them easily hundreds of kilometers, sometimes thousands of kilometers away. It's a really remarkable little bit of physics that you know, humans and animals exploit alike. Now, to go deeper, what's the other sort of interesting region of the ocean? So I said that's, that, that sound speeds increases linearly with depth. So that causes sound to refract upwards below 1,500 meters. It sounds always refracting upwards. And so you can imagine, well, all the sound generated at the surface by, by ships and by storms and waves rainstorms, all of that sound is going to eventually refract back up towards the surface and never reach certain depths. So there's this idea of a critical depth, and it's usually around five or 6,000 meters, below which no sound at the surface can really penetrate. And the idea being if it's propagating at any angle other than straight down, it's going to refract back up and go back up towards the surface and never make it below that critical depth. That's interesting. And that's why the defense application comes into play. Oh, right. The because sinister element of this. <laughs> it's not just our acoustic releases failing. <laughs> it's not just the acoustic, exactly, exactly. It's not just comms and acoustic releases, although that certainly is something that is very interesting. Um, but the idea is below this critical depth, it's very quiet, very, very quiet. And so if you're trying to detect a acoustic source, like a submarine or a ship, if you want to do some tracking of a, of a vessel, one way to do that is to increase your signal to noise ratio. And the easiest way is just to go below the critical depth where the noise power level decreases, thereby giving you the best chance of hearing something. So for example, if you wanted to listen to submarines coming out of the Navy base in Guam, the Mariana Trench would be a good place to It'd hide. It would be absolutely the perfect place to put your receiver. <laughs> oh, okay. You would, yeah, yeah, you would get just the, the best quality detection. One of the things that we've measured that's been interesting is actually 
the noise power doesn't always decrease below the critical depth. When it's a windy day, and by windy, like 10 knots, not really that windy for the middle of the ocean, there actually is so much noise that propagates directly downwards. So directly, you know, at 90 degrees or zero degrees, whatever you want to orient it directly straight down, that doesn't get refracted. And actually, there's enough of that noise that the power remains constant below the critical depth. So that was kind of one of the, the interesting findings we've made. So to continue along the story a little bit, we made these measurements down to nine kilometers. We found some of these findings that were applicable to sort of understanding the vertical distribution of noise in the ocean. But I never actually got to land an instrument on the bottom of the Challenger Deep um, because I tried and it imploded at 8,500 meters. Well, you, you got pretty close. Got pretty close. It's a high percent. We've all had that happen. <laughs> We've all wrecked yeah, something. We don't, we don't talk about it. <laughs> We certainly, we certainly wouldn't talk about it on a podcast. No, no, we wouldn't publicize our <laughs> crushing defeats. Well, the, <laughs> this was kind of interesting because I had two systems in the water. So I lost one, big disappointment. But the other one was recording. So we have a recording of an implosion at 8,500 meters, which is, you know, a ton of pressure. I don't know. Actually, I shouldn't say a ton. It's some unmeasurable amount of, well, uh, that's not right either. It's a lot of pressure. An alliterative ton. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Do you want me to play that? I, I mean, I think you should, but you should warn everyone that is going to be extremely sudden and loud. It's, it's basically the audio equivalent of a jump scare. All right, Tom, do it. Load it, load it up and fire it off. That sounded expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, disappointing. Disappointing. It was actually that my last trip as a graduate student. And so then I moved on and, you know, became postdoc. Then I started this lab here. That's when I sort of was like, let's try that again. You know, let's well, like, fact, oh, David, that when you did that challenge, a deep job without imploded, <laughs> Tom and I got off the ship the day before you got on. Yeah. Right. So, okay. Yeah. I remember that's when yeah. there's that deepest fish stuff and yeah, I kind of remember hearing a little bit of, yeah, that's funny. Because a few weeks later we had that clip. Yeah. And then we're like, ooh. But I like the fact that normally when we lose gear at sea, it, it just goes. It's AWOL. It just yeah. doesn't come back and it's, it's a bit of an anticlimax. I like how yours went in a blaze of glory. Yes. I quite, I quite like that. It's just an the whole guns blazing. And am I right in yeah. thinking we're hearing the echo there? It is a it is a single point implosion and then that's it reverberating through the trench. Yeah, that's what's so cool about it is that um, not only do you hear the echo, but the echo is 11 seconds later. So it's like going into the most majestic, you know, natural cathedral of all time and, and clapping your hands and you just have this, but there's like multiple echoes, yeah, you know, yeah. if you really listen closely. And the first arrival there, that sort of, it's kind of a click and then sort of a breaking glass sound. Really, that's the hydrophone itself just becomes so compressed and saturated that it can't record. You know, it just makes that click and it's frozen in like total terror. And then you hear the rest of the sort of the decay there as it kind of recovers and starts relaxing again. I kind of describe the sound as breaking glass, but really what it is is it's a giant bubble right 
And then that bubble mm. breaks into trillions, some you know, in, infinite number of smaller bubbles and some cascading um, process. Uh, so it's just, yeah, it's just an amazing bit of audio at least. And then of course we did turn it into something. So we used it to write a paper. So when the pandemic happened, I was like, all right, finally we can get to some, you know, analyzing old data that we've sort of put off analyzing. And uh, we used it to write a paper about echo sounding using this implosion in the Challenger Deep. And the interesting thing again there is that first of all, we have this super loud thing. So it, you know, we have these multiple reflections. And so you can use those, the timing of those reflections to kind of do a simplified way of, of sounding. But then we also had like the CTD measurement that was in situ at the same time from the other lander. And we also had that super low noise floor because the other lander was at about eight kilometers itself, eight, eight and a half kilometers itself. So it was really, really quiet down there. So we could really get uh, clear returns as opposed to, you can imagine on the, you know, on the surface, you're running your echo sensor. It's really noisy up there. It's uh, so yeah, we managed to, to turn something out of that, uh, out of that loss. So for those who have never thought about undersea soundscapes, and it's not something that we normally really think about, to be fair, what does the deep sea actually sound like on an average kind of day? What's this sort of ambient soundscape of it? It truly is noise in the way, in the absence of any biological activity, which in these regions, I think uh, without some bait, you're not going to hear much. I don't think there's too much sound going on. Mm. When you get below that critical depth, you're really just hearing the ocean above you. And by the ocean, I mean, really mean this infinite sheet of perfectly flat ocean with these little flashes of sound coming from every little breaking, spilling wave. You know, when you're out there, they look so small, but they're, they actually generate a little, lot of sound. Every spilling bit of water contains these bubbles and the bubbles get injected into the ocean and they ring because of the sort of pressure instability that they have. They vibrate and you can imagine each spilling wave, there's again, you know, a huge number of bubbles, and then there's a huge number of these waves, and they're all random in space and time, but sort of uniformly distributed in both. It's almost like going to your television, just turning it up, turning the volume up all the way, and just listening to that static. You hear this accumulation of all these sources that have random phase arriving at your, your ears, and it just sounds like this static, it truly is a a statistical noise, you know, in that sense. So out of interest, some of the more violent aspects of the deep sea, say, for example, take a hydrothermal vent. Is that, mm -hmm. presumably that's really loud. Well, interesting because <laughs> we've made two measurements on hydrothermal vents in the last year. So bubbles are very loud. There mm -hmm. are other mechanisms. So both of our recordings of hydrothermal vents, when you play them back, you don't hear the hydrothermal vent necessarily. So it's not loud enough to sort of stick out amongst the other noises that are going on around you. So that was a little bit surprising. I think if you were in the back arc basin, for instance, by the Mariana Trench, if you went sort of to the west there, to the shallow, you would hear bubbling vents. But um, at the particular event we went to, which was one was the Endeavor vent at the Wanda Fuca plate, and the other was the Stritan vent, which is in Iceland, which is the shallowest vent in the world. It's 15 meters from, from oh, the right. surface. So it's <laughs> the perfect place to do oceanography. Both of those, while they're not hot enough, I suppose, or they don't have the right thermodynamic conditions to create mm. bubbles. There's probably some chemistry involved in there too that I don't really know, but they don't, they don't have bubbles. So they're not really loud. They do, however, have really hot water. In the case of the Endeavor, it's like 300 degree water mixing with four degree water. And that itself is a process that does generate sound very inefficiently, but enough that you can hear it 
And then you can also think about just the flow. You know, you have this high flow of fluid out of a long sort of organ pipe looking structure. You could imagine there's be standing waves in there. There could be vibrations from that that you can hear as well. All of those are like low frequency things. And the problem is when you get down to low frequency in this world, you start to deal with things like flow noise and, you know, ships and fin whales and other annoying things that get in the way. But certainly you can hear these things, but they're not as loud. Again, as Considering how much energy is there, in a way, not a lot of that is being lost to sound. I always just assumed it would be really noisy, just because it looks so violent. But I guess it you're right, so it's, there's no yeah. bubbles in there, then maybe not. You expect a rumble. Yeah. We've yeah. been tricked again by these documentaries. It's the twinkly bioluminescence all over again. Yeah. And the thing is, so that there actually was a paper from maybe 10, 15 years ago where the first person w- went to record sound in a hydrothermal vent and he put his hydrophone in the, in the flow of the vent and it melted off. And it's like, oh, it was wow. really, really noisy. It's like, of course it is because fluid was moving across the hydrophone, right? And so yeah. that's the same thing as taking your microphone and blowing into it. I don't know if you can hear that. I don't know if you guys follow the news. I think this is going to be a bit of a subtweet here. I think that's what they call this. But uh, if you guys follow the news and you saw that rover from Mars sent some sound back and the clip basically just sounds like someone blowing on their phone and then uh, a hard disk spinning. And they're like, this is amazing. This is what it sounds like on Mars. We've done it. And it's like, That's what it sounds like if you take a microphone on Mars and put it into the wind, right? It's not sound. You wouldn't hear that if you were there. Yeah, it's like putting a microphone out of the car window. That's right, exactly. (laughs) So I do get a little bit annoyed by these. The entertainment aspect of of sound can be very misleading. You've come to the right place for that. (laughs) I think that, I mean, it it all started, you know, what's what's that Cousteau, Louis Mal movie from the 60s that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes Film Festival that everyone loves? Silence de la Mer, right? Silent yeah. Ocean or whatever, which is wholly untrue. Just not a thing. It's very noisy. Alan, Alan, he, he gets really annoyed when people use the microphones badly. I think <laughs> he does a podcast as well. We might be shown for the amateurs we are. I could be all right. The man in the shop said this is the best one. <laughs> No, I mean, that, that Mars thing did did bug me, but not enough to write a letter to the editor or anything. I mean, it just was such a high profile thing, too. People were saying, this is what it sounds like on Mars. And it's like, absolutely not. It doesn't sound like that at all. All we're hearing is the damn rover and the wind. Yeah. We have the same challenge in the ocean, always trying to deal with flow noise, trying to deal with noise from our own system and, you know, electronic noise. And yeah, it's it's a hard thing to do. It would be really interesting actually to do combination video, audio, and baited trap, I do think, in the, in the deep ocean. Because I know these things definitely make noise when they're eating. Yeah. Um, and the question is, you know, do they use that sound to you know, communicate with themselves to kind of flock together? And, and I'm actually giving some data to uh, a colleague of yours in YT, and that we talk via Tim, because we had his hydrophone on the lander at the same time we were filming probably the Mariana, I think. And yeah, you have these huge big swarms of amphipods that come along and just destroy the bait for about six hours. And they mm-hmm. will increase in numbers very, very quickly. And then as the bait goes, they die down very quickly. So you should theoretically see a noise level follow that yeah. follow that pattern. And then but when the fish come, the big cuscules, they tend to come much later on and they very gradually build in numbers to the very end. So you should mm-hmm. theoretically be able to pick out two frequencies that marry up to that. So that's something we're going to look into. And then I think Tom knows more about this, but I think the Cuscules say the males or females have drumming muscles. Oh, neat. I'm desperate to record sound at one of our landers because I'm pretty sure a lot of the behavioral stuff is coordinated with sound. So yeah, the, the males, they both have drumming muscles. They're bigger in the males. 
So the males right. will probably almost sing and advertise their presence. And then the yeah. females will be attracted to that, but they still can communicate as well. So I think there'll be, there'll have to be a sort of timing of gamete release, essentially. They'll have to be coordinating the mating. And I think they'll use sound for that. But um, they would do that all the time, though. I don't know. I don't know at all. It's not deep sea fresh. If they only spawn once every 50 years, maybe the chances the chances of recording it might be quite slim. <laughs> I would like to leave quite a big food fall because I reckon, you know, you're a grenadier or a cuscule or something like that. You find like a whale fall, something that's going to be a habitat, essentially, that's going to last for a few years. Yeah. I think in terms of your energy budget, you hang around and you reproduce then. So I think yeah, makes sense. I think it might end up being a bit of a last days of Rome big feast and an orgy going on at the same time bit of a drum and drum and bass evening yeah yeah let's <laughs> drop the bass <laughs> um so yeah I, i'm i'm fascinated in this and i'm i'm adamant that a lot of these animals are, are quite noisy but it probably in their own subtle up close ways yeah and it's hard to tell i mean these experiments are really difficult to tell if they're using the noise to communicate because there's competing factors like we did one in in san diego bay there's seahorses there and they make really loud noise because they snap their jaws open and essentially cavitates. And when they suck in the little pellets of food, whatever they're eating, uh, San Diego Bay itself is really, really muddy. So they can't see. They certainly are not using their eyes to see each other feeding. Are they using sound? So we actually did an experiment that went nowhere. <laughs> in the uh, Scripps Aquarium when I was a student there and we built a maze and we put a recording of a of a seahorse eating at one end of the maze and then the seahorse at the other to see if it would like navigate the maze to find its buddy eating and it didn't at all. Just uh, worth a shot. hung out <laughs> in a corner and just, yeah. I was like, ah, oh, probably makes sense. They probably use smell. But I, I imagine the deep ocean is a lot different because it just is a different scale, right? I mean, it's massive down there and it's so sparse and the food has to be pretty scarce. There's even a paper, isn't there, Alan, hypothesizing that the amphipods hear the feeding frenzy and are drawn in by that. Yeah, it's one from the 70s. Someone had calculated that there are a bunch of abyssal amphipods, I think it was Eurythenes or something. When they start feeding, they should theoretically be able to hear that a kilometer away. Very cool. And the snailfish's pharyngeal jaws as well. I'm sure they'll be making a crunching, grinding noise as they're munching on all those pods. Well, that was something we should look into. Yeah, yeah still lots to learn. Good. <laughs> Given that we're on a podcast and we're speaking to someone who's got lots of interesting audio files, I think we should have a game of what the hell is that? Well, <laughs> can I offer a counter name from a listener suggestion? Go on then. I've got a lovely pun from Fran, one of our listeners. What can we grenade here? Did you like that? <laughs> who's Fran? One of our listeners. She wrote in. <laughs> who, who is this Fran? We should get her to stop listening immediately. I'm going to bestow upon Fran the High Hungry I'm Dad award for excellent wordplay. I think it's pretty fun. Whatever Fran funny. works, she should be fired. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think she's a, she's a budding student. So we'll just end it, her career before it began because you hate fun. <laughs> it's not fun. It's just rubbish. I like it. Okay, well, fair enough. Let's have a game of... Go on, say it, Tom. What can we grenade here? Right, so to play this game, believe it or not, Tom has to play the clip himself, <laughs> which is interesting. And They're just numbered, though. No cheating. No cheating. So I guess, Tom, just play number one and see what happens. Oh, this is cool. That's clearly a TIE fighter docking on a Star Destroyer. <laughs> is, are, the, are the closer sounds sort of part of it as well, or is it just the rumble? That's oh, somebody trying to drown a shark. That's, that's, a sweet, that's a sweet relief here that we get underwater. So that was going from the air to the water. That's uh, a little ah. hint there, you know. Ah. 
That's the deployment. That's the deployment. Quite a. Eh. I'm not sure if you could hear it. You could hear some people talking. Yeah. I'm not sure if Alan's on there, and uh, I could I can kind of hear it, but I'm not sure if I'm sort of you know convincing myself of stuff. No, no, there, I did get voices. I thought like because they there's a lot going on in there. I was just like, am I yeah. listening to that rumble? Am I listening to the the sort of clicking and bumping sounds? And then the, there was voices as well. So that oh, there's about seven different sounds in there. <laughs> Quite a bit going on in there, just to get you warmed up. And I think the neat thing about it is that it, it really shows you how sort of figurative the data is. You're like, oh, that's just literally just recording. Like if we recorded on our phones right now, that would be what we'd hear. But as soon as you get underwater, you know, it gets calm and gets a little less crazy. And it kind of gives you an idea of how these hydrophones really work, how sensitive they are and whatnot. Yeah, that's good. That's good calibration. Uh, right, right. Tom, fire up number two. Okay. I know what that is. Sounds like a train going past. It sounds like multiple trains. Mm -hmm. I think that's a vessel. I think I can hear the engine, but I can hear something else in there as well. Yeah. But maybe not. Maybe not. It's pinger or ultrasound. Maybe something. Maybe something else running. You're spot on. It's it's definitely a vessel. It's a big vessel. And the yeah, the interesting thing is that they have multiple sources of sound. They have generators. Mm -hmm. They have engines that are turning props. They have props that create noise. And so all of this turning machinery, right? Like some of the generators are just creating electricity to power the TV that's in the lounge or whatever. All of this machinery turns at different speeds. There's gearboxes that sort of relate it all together. And that vessel is like 50 kilometers away or something like that. It's, it's quite far away. Yeah. I'm seeing the military merit now because you could yeah. probably figure out what that vessel was, what it was capable of. They've got three of their four generators on, so they're up to something yeah. rather than just passively moving along. Absolutely. And you, you can hear how fast it's going. You can hear the captain fart. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> I've got a story about that. It came up last week. So we're trying to sell a ship at the moment. One of the selling points of this particular vessel, which is the one you all know very well, is that it's extremely quiet because it was built as a submarine hunter in the Cold War and the engines are all up on rubber blocks, so it's really, really quiet. And to demonstrate that, we got a report written by an acoustics expert in Australia who originally did the evaluation of the ship when we first started. And he's saying the Australian Navy, they'll put $1 million on every decibel lost between the engine room and the outside of the ship. Wow. So this ship has $12 million of lost decibels. Of silence, twelve million dollars of silence. I love it. <laughs> right, Tom. Clip number three. Ha! I know oh, you. I know what that is. <laughs> Did it not reply? One way call. Uh, that yeah. is the acoustic modem on the limiting factor. That, that's correct. That is a modem, and part of that clip that's really interesting. It is interesting to hear the modem because it reminds you of trying to log into the internet in 1992. Mm -hmm. Also, because you can also hear the reverb there, right? You can hear how reverberant that space is when you hear that signal, and I, I do love that. Right, go on, Tom. Number four. Oh. It feels Bored. familiar. Like, is this ah, ice this cracking? going to freak you out. Close. Glass cracking. It's glass cracking. That's correct. Is this going to get expensive? That's what it feels like. Well, <laughs> it, 
Is it the sphere is it, rubbing? It's, it's the sphere itself. So the instrument is built out of this two hemispheres put together, right? And that's all the electronics inside. And so the sphere is great because every spot on the sphere has an equal amount of pressure and it's supported by every adjacent spot that has the same amount of pressure. So it compresses totally evenly, right? Except at the dam interface where the two hemispheres meet, right? This is quite triggering to us. This is <laughs> That is a sound that... Uh... Oh, now I've got a few spheres in my time. I've got a yeah. soundtrack to my anxiety now when we're looking for That's those right. little glass shavings in the bottom of the spheres. That's what you're hearing there, is the formation of those little glass shavings off the inner lip of the hemisphere. It's also uncannily similar to listening to Tom's anxiety crack. <laughs> that might be it. You know, sometimes you just sit there making this really high-pitched snapping noise and you're like, what is that? And then you realize he's just worrying again. Yeah, I'm just fatiguing <laughs> under the pressure, much like the spheres. <laughs> you need to um, convince someone to bring a recording of that along with them in the sub oh. and play that, you know, yeah. as a little prank. Number five, Tom, head it up. Maybe beyond our hearing. It sounds like somebody's in the shower. I'll spare you the, the guessing. This is the actual recording from the bottom of the Challenger Deep, just sitting there. Oh. It's a recording of silence. Of course, it's not totally silent. And there's always this ambiguity of how loud something is, right? Mm. So we send a microphone down there, we record it, we bring it back, and then you want to listen to it. Well, you have a volume on your stereo, right? So right away, you're going to apply some gain there, or do you normalize the file, or then you're playing it back over this podcast. So that the idea of volume is always a little bit suspect. And if you want to listen to an actual calibrated how loud it would actually be to actually have your ears down there, it gets a bit complicated. But in general, it's interesting to hear sort of the timbre of the sounds at a listenable volume. Mm. So that's essentially what we are hearing there is just the silence at the bottom of the Challenger Deep. Of course, it's not totally silent. You can hear all sorts of breaking waves from the surface. And maybe if you listen long enough, there's maybe other things to hear. Yeah, that's sort of the, the quintessential... Ambience. Yes, exactly. I thought it was amazing you can hear the waves lapping on the surface at 11,000 meters underwater. I still find that mind-blowing. So if there's a big storm, you know, if it's a big force eight blowing at the top, that must be quite loud then. It gets louder. And I think... We should maybe play a related clip next. Now, this is not from the Challenger Deep. This is from the Philippine Sea. But again, below that critical depth, quite deep. And there's a change to it. So do you hear sort of the quality of sound is a little bit different? Yep. That's because there's just exactly that. There's like a rainstorm, one of these, you know, mid-Pacific warm rainstorms just pelting down on the surface. So you're really hearing, again, an uncountable number of raindrops hitting the ocean surface, creating a little bubble, making that smack, making a bubble that resonates. And since the raindrops have a characteristic size, there's a characteristic frequency that gets brought out. It's a little bit brighter um, sound than you would hear from waves, which sort of have a larger bubble, lower frequency sound to them. This could be a surface recording. This is great. Is there anything you've ever recorded that you just have no idea where it was? I do have some recordings where I, I don't really know what it is. And I have a lot of other people's recordings where we've tried to sit down to figure out. It can be quite challenging. And that's one of the reasons like why our system, for instance, we have multiple hydrophones to try and do some of that coherent processing where you can look at the direction it's coming from. You, you can look at its spatial correlation and try and get some understanding of how big the thing was and you know where it was. And, you know, One of the really interesting things that I've been contacted about before is looking for neutrinos. You know, they, they interact really well with heavy water. They interact with some vanishing probability with regular old seawater. But the thought is the ocean's big enough that if you put a sensor down there long enough, you would hear a neutrino. 
Can you guess the sound a neutrino makes when it interacts with seawater? Basically the same sound as like a cracking piece of glass or a snapping shrimp or cable rubbing or something. It's just like the same <laughs> sound as all these other very difficult to differentiate sounds, which are sort of always... It's funny because I spent two or three years working in underwater neutrino telescopes and it was a similar problem because they were trying to put down thousands of photomultiplier tubes to look for this right. nanosecond burst of Cherenkov radiation, which is about 480 nanometers, which is the same wavelength as every bioluminescent animal in the sea. Right. Right. So they put, they put down these arrays of France. And because the arrays are sat static in moving water, everything within the moving water hit the photomultiplier and went, flash. <laughs> <laughs> I literally spent two years of my life going around the Mediterranean with a low-light camera looking for nothing, trying to find a place where everything was dead. We found it in the end. Managed to find the most boring place in the deep sea. Job done. Yeah, looking for noise and noise, or looking for noise-like signals buried in noise is thankless task, I think, but seems to be the name of the game. All right, Tom, what else you got? Uh, next one. Is that one of Tom's migraines? <laughs> and much louder. <laughs> this was recorded outside your skull. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's industrial again. Yeah. It's smaller. I'm feeling winch. Or maybe a small vessel prop. Yeah, that's that's right on the money. So this is actually when we were trying to recover the lander. And basically because of my poor experiment design and poor knowledge of our system, we were a little bit early trying to recover it. And we drove right over top of it. Not right over top, but hundreds of meters away as it surfaced right behind us, basically. So we had trouble finding it because it was behind us and we weren't looking behind us. And we got this re great recording of, of a nice vessel. So nice, quiet vessel. Yeah, there'll be, there'll be data in these sort of noise profiles as well, because there'll come a there time you when you've got some nice raw data with something like this mixed in there. A whole bunch of yeah. nuclear submarines on there. Yeah. Never know. You never I know. I counted at least seven in that clip. Yeah. <laughs> Just quietly watching you. Okay, next one. Is that it just floating on the surface? That's just floating on the surface. The, the perfect way to end it. Starfishing <laughs> on the surface. <laughs> At the end of a hard day. That's right. <laughs> Again, you can hear that there's a very defined, like this is less broadband. It's more of a focused frequency where the bubbles have a pitch. The bubbles, which are the lapping of the water against the instrument, have a certain characteristic size that has a very defined pitch, you know? You can really visualize what's happening, actually. I can hear the little lap of water rolling over and then the, the eddying and swirling of the bubble that's formed. Yeah, and you have like an intuitive idea about the size of it. You know, I think that's is sort of interesting how that can work. Yeah. Very cool. Right. Yeah, that was it. Okay. I liked that. Yeah. That was good fun. Yeah. That was very good fun. Yeah. I think, I don't know, I wasn't keeping track of your scores, Tom, but I would say it was... Nailed a, it, I think. More, I would <laughs> say it was more or less, more or less an epic fail. <laughs> I say job job well done. Thank job you. Job well done. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, well done, Tom. My host isn't very nice to me. 
I can actually maybe retaliate in your career, David, if you've come across the bloop. It's something we covered on a previous episode. I have heard the bloop. Yeah. We sort of asked a few experts at the time, but what is your interpretation? I don't want to spoil the fun, but I think they solved the bloop. Oh, yeah, it's totally done. But people ignore they, that because it's not the fun. Bloop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> ice calving, iceberg related sound. Yeah. It's ice crashing about. Yeah. Everyone hears it in its sped up, pitched up version. And if you listen to the... That's right. Again, the entertainment industry just ruining it for the rest of us. Go for it, Dave. Feel it in our gate. Let it go. How dare they make something boring, entertaining, as their name suggests. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. <laughs> then the, the people who watch it email us and we have to spoil right, their right. day. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a one last interesting related tidbit to that, the sound of ice crashing. So we have these acoustic observatories all over the world, right on the sound channel axis to try it back to the beginning. And the idea of these is not to look for submarines, but actually to look for nuclear explosions that are constantly monitoring for nuclear explosions, be them underwater or underground or in the air. I think Don was involved in that. Didn't he tell a story about putting one of those sensors down with the tears? Yes, he did, yeah. But then Don's done everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Don has done absolutely everything. Don Walsh we're talking about, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So there's one of these, you know, sets of sensors that are in the middle of the, uh, I believe it's the Indian Ocean, and they used a method of cross-correlating noise. So you have these just indistinguishable recordings, sort of like that one we listened to earlier, which just sounds like silence. But when you cross-correlate the two recordings of silence and stack them enough times, you can actually pick out a travel time between one sensor and another, or kilometers apart. So there's sort of milliseconds, tens of milliseconds uh, of delay time from one sensor to the other. So they stacked 10 years worth of noise recordings on these, from one of these stations, and they could pick out travel time between the sensors, and they use those to infer the temperature of the ocean between the two sensors. So it's this way of doing a deep ocean temperature monitoring on huge timescales, like a decade. And of course, that is related to something you guys might have heard of, climate change, as they call it. Yeah, yeah. I heard about that somewhere. That is incredible. Yeah. It made this beautiful curve where it's about you know a tenth of a degree of warming in the deep ocean over, over the decade. And uh, it's a really, really beautiful measurement. Now, it turns out that the noise that was sort of indistinguishable when you listen to it, but what they sort of figured out by looking at the directionality and looking at the statistics of the noise was generated by ice calving in Antarctica. So, you know, sort of the ice falling off the face of uh, the sheets of ice and crashing into the water. There's sort of enough instances of that to create this sort of constant noise that's always coming from the south to the north that allow them to measure this time of flight difference between the two sensors and ultimately the temperature in the deep ocean. That is incredible. It's a beautiful paper. That's so clever. It just makes me feel really stupid. <laughs> And what useful data yeah. and independent data as well, not not from temperature probes or... We use observatories to monitor space for all sorts of things. And it does give you sort of the idea that there is value in spending tons of money to put down these ocean observatories, right? I mean, they're not cheap things to do and they don't always necessarily have a super clear defined end goal. But I think as more and more of these observatories exist for longer and longer, we're going to find a lot of people doing really interesting science, brilliant people out there are going to use this data in ways that we would have never thought of. That seems to be a running theme on the, on the podcast, even on the museum collections episode, people were just gathering data and preserving it at the time. And then some incredible stuff has come later down the line. You know, the, the, the museum collections, they do nothing about DNA barcoding, but right, because right. all of that was archived, because all of that was collected, and it was useful in its own right, just like these uh, hydrophones were, but smarter people, new technology down the line, this long period data might be, yeah, sound to measure the temperature of the deep sea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, David, that's been fascinating. 
Absolutely fascinating. I did have one more. Oh, no. I have a, a, a mysteriously labeled Miss Barge, which is a beauty pageant, okay. maybe? This, yeah, this will be, okay, be, be a good ending. <laughs> Who's Miss Barge? Like, let's play this as a bit of a downer. Let's hear it. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Again, machinery, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Mississippi barge. It's a barge going up and down the Mississippi. And the Mississippi River is absolutely full of these barges, and we pay no attention to them. But it's incredibly loud. Incredibly loud. It's not like living next to the M1, as you might say, or whatever, the freeway. It's not like living next to the freeway. It's like living underneath Heathrow. It's like living on the runway at Heathrow, you know? But some of these environments are just bombarded with human noise, you know, day in and day out. I think another emerging bit of a scientific area is trying to understand what impacts these noises can have on the creatures that try and live there. Well, am I right in saying that a lot of people have been doing these measurements again during the pandemic because you're suddenly in a very interesting experimental period where a lot of the shipping noise has been vastly reduced? Yeah, that's correct. That's been a hot topic in the the acoustical society, especially the beginning. At the onset of the pandemic, there was uh, a brief period where we actually got to make lots of measurements. There was no ferries, no cruise liners, you know, fewer container ships, and uh, and get an idea of what these places should maybe sound like. And I, and I think the next wave of research that will come out of that, I think we are seeing that a little bit with birds and other sort of sound using terrestrial animals. I think we will see a lot of research to say how that anthropause, as they're calling it, this break in human activity, how that has impacted in a positive way or a negative way. It's an experiment we never could have normally run. For decades, we're going to be analyzing this last year. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see the results. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Dave. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate uh, the interest. That was really fantastic stuff from David. And of course, no episode would be complete without some wisdom from Don Walsh. He had a hard time actually in narrowing down career as a submariner, which is all about sound, really. He picked a couple of stories, though, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy those. Hello again. This is oceanographer and retired U.S. Navy captain Don Walsh. This program is about sound in the sea. And my 15 years of personal experiences as a submariner, including commanding one in the Pacific Fleet, we call this part of the Navy the silent service. And why is that? Well, literally, our lives depend on not revealing our presence. In other words, staying silent. Submarines, or boats as we traditionally call them, are the original stealth weapon system. We only disclose our location when we choose to. Usually, that's when we attack the enemy. Otherwise, no one knows we're there. Since the oceans are essentially opaque, our underwater eyes are, in fact, our ears. We all know about what's around us through listening, listening to the sea outside. We call our listening systems sonars, an acronym for sound navigation and ranging. The sailors operating these systems, they are lifesavers. Submarines rarely go active with their sonars. While our own onboard sonar systems are capable of this, It also gives away your location, and that's a bad idea. So those Hollywood movie soundtracks of subs moving through the sea, clanging away on their sonars, are fictitious. We don't want to make any noise. Our lives depend on that. But there is the problem of ambient noise. The idea of a calm and tranquil sea of words and songs is a fiction. It's actually a very noisy place. 
Underwater, there's a cacophony of sounds, both natural and man-made. And some of the natural sounds even sound man-made. Some sound like carpenters, others like frying bacon, uh, others sound like um, moans and groans. And it's uh, really hard to sort through all that noise out there and pick out what's natural and what is man-made. For example, an enemy submarine. So as a result, Navy underwater sound researchers have built audio catalogs of both types of sounds. This lets the sonar operators on board practice identifying targets, those natural and those man-made. Not only are we interested in the sounds around us, we are also concerned about our own self-noise. Navies today spend huge sums to ensure their submarines are quiet because the noise you make will give away your location. Let me give you a personal example. One of our standard training exercises is called submarine versus submarine. Two submarines are put into an imaginary box that's 10 miles long and 10 miles wide with a depth of a few hundred feet. To avoid collisions, these subs are separated vertically, usually by 100 or so feet. The exercise begins with each sub in an opposite corner of the box. As you slowly move towards each other, you listen for some radiated sound from the other boat. Imagine that it's like two people in a completely dark room hunting each other with baseball bats, except these are two warships practicing a deadly game. Who can kill the other first? When you are really sure you've detected him, then you go active on your sonar to take a single ping range. Of course, if you are wrong, and then he now knows where you are, and you failed the exercise. On the submarine I commanded, I had an unusual experience during one of these exercises. We were moving very slowly across the exercise box. I'd had all my crew, not actually on watch, get in their bunks to avoid accidental noises. The galley was shut down to ensure no pots and pans noises, and the crew on watch was told to be as quiet as possible while carrying out their duties. And of course, we did not use our internal public address system. All interior communications were by headsets fitted with microphones. After some time passed, my leading sonarman reported he thought he heard horses. Well, he was an experienced, sharp professional, so I believed him. But what was it? It turned out as we got closer to the other sub, we could hear a Western movie. Yes, they had decided to run a movie to offset crude boredom during the exercise. We had him, and I ordered a single-ping sonar transmission. This told us where and how far away he was, and that was all I needed to set up a fire control solution for firing a torpedo at him. Of course, we did not launch anything. I just contacted the other captain on the underwater telephone, which is a voice-modulated sonar, to let him know that he'd lost the game. He kindly bought me a few beers the next time we met at the officers' club. Actually, they should have gone to our sonarman team. I have many more sounds in the CC stories, but sadly, there's no time left to tell them now. Well, wait a minute. Just one more. A few years after I'd retired from the Navy, I was invited to STAR, in one of the BBC's Horizon series television programs. It was called Deaf Whale, Dead Whale. They flew me to England, and I ended up at the city of Birkenhead in the sonar room of a retired Royal Navy submarine, a museum ship called HMS Onyx. There I talked to the camera about the continuing conflicts between ships and marine mammals. The central idea was that both animals and submarines had similar problems with identifying and acting sounds around us. It is a matter of life and death for both of us. So I guess one is never too old for show business. Well, that's all for now, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Don. It sounds like there was probably some lessons learned from that exercise. Well, why don't we go and see what Larkin has to say on the matter? Over to Larkin for a Tales from the High Sea. 
Aloha, sailors and scientists. Larkin here, your local sailor checking in with a salty tale from the high seas. I heard we're talking about sound today. And as it turns out, sound plays a very important role on ships. From the communication between the crew on the radios to strange knocking sounds you sometimes hear around the vessel, all of them are important and must be paid close attention to as they can mean the difference between a safe passage and an emergency situation. One of my favorite stories starts out on a ship in Alaska. Um, so the ship is all secure. We're ready to make this trip down to, uh, to Mexico and we set sail. At this point in the story, we've been at sea for a few days now and things are getting rough. Um, as most salty stories begin, it was a terrible day at sea. There was, you know, lightning and thunder and waves and wind and everything was happening. Tons of rain, a big thunderstorm. While this was happening, I was actually on watch, which means I was up in the bridge with the mate that was driving. While I was up there, we start to hear this knocking sound. Um, it was like this clink, 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 clink. And the funny thing about ships is that it's hard to pinpoint where a sound is coming from. Due to the structure of the ship and the constant motion, it is, it's just very difficult. But since I was the one on watch, I was designated to go like check it out. It's coming from, we think, like the top deck. So I go up there and keep in mind, like it's, it's rough out there. We got the wind going, the rain, all the things happening. And I'm up there trying to hold on to like rails and stuff, looking for where this sound is coming from. It's the top deck, so it's totally exposed to all the elements. And that's where the guests usually spend their time observing the glaciers are like looking at the scenery. So it's all nice and open. And there's a lot of chairs and tables up there. But during this time, all the chairs and tables are tied up. They're all super secure. So I go over to this mountain of chairs and tables while the ship is going all over the place and there's the wind and the rain. And I'm climbing over this mountain, you know, that's all covered in tarps and everything. And I'm trying to figure out where the sound's coming from. And I locate it. Yes, it wasn't an emergency this time. It was a simple, like a chair. While I was tying down, making it secure again, you know, I could see the ocean on either side of the vessel. So the wind's going and I'm trying to like, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this chair. Rain is in my face. It's like an intense situation. I know it's just tying the chair down, but trust me, when you're in the situation, you're going back and forth on the water, get intense pretty quick. I look over and a humpback whale breaches right next to the ship. I'm not kidding. He was maybe like like five meters away from the. He was so close. He was so close. He just breaches and his little fin goes up. And it was almost like he was like waving at me like, hey, Larkin, you got this. And it was just like this connection that I had like with nature. I was in this beautiful moment and I was like, and I, and I love being at sea and that, that intense environment. So it was just like, it's one of my favorite uh, memories of working on ships, being that close to like something so beautiful. Um, I hope that was a fun, salty tale. And you all... Uh, I don't know. What do you say to people? Keep on keeping on. Larkin out. <laughs> Thank you, Larkin. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. Our email address is in the show notes. Feel free to write in with thoughts, feedback. Tell me you hate it. Tell me you like it. And of course, wordplay and puns is always welcome or questions. We'll gladly discuss them on the show. For now, we'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea yourself, we can support you with technology and know-how. 
Or if you would like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can help with storytelling, fact checking, even podcasting, it seems. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. Oh, Tom, got one more quote for you. Oh, yes, please. I put this one aside just for you. It comes from uh, Mr. Frank Zappa. It's obviously lost its context somewhere. I have no idea. But uh, his quote was, beware of the fish people. They are the true enemy. Wow. So maybe it's never been lizard people. Maybe it's fish people. It's fish people. Yeah. Taxonomy is important, even in your evil overlords.